Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're exploring a decades-old forgotten quest of one man from Cincinnati. His name was Butch Miller. The object of his desires, a historic treasure that was nearly lost to the ages until Halloween Day, 2009, when a group of kayakers happened upon his abandoned vessel, stuck in the mud of a tributary off the Ohio River. One of those kayakers, a Mr. Henry Dorfman, spoke with me about that memorable day. And we were um, paddling the Ohio River. Uh, my group is Cincy Paddlers. Uh, we're a local group, but we have about 2,200 members. And the Ohio River is one place we like to go. Aside from just going up and down the river, we like to poke up uh, the various creeks and coves and that type of thing, and that's how we came across it. Okay. So you were just kind of enjoying the day and exploring the bank and the tributaries? Uh, that's correct. I know it's been about 10 years, uh, but can you set the scene for me and what, what you remember seeing as you were going down Taylor Creek? Sure. Uh, we were paddling on the Ohio River, uh, close to the I-275 bridge, uh, the one on the uh, west side of town, and saw a creek opening and paddled into it. And very quickly, maybe 100 yards in, uh, we saw this large ship grounded uh, more or less in the middle of the creek, a little bit uh, to the left side, and uh, it was big. And uh, so, of course, we proceeded to paddle up to it uh, to see what it was about. Now, uh, approaching it from the stern, it looked odd. I mean, first of all, you don't see a boat or a ship that large on the Ohio River except for towboats. This obviously wasn't a towboat. It had something, some device cobbled onto the stern. It just looked very odd. And then as we drew alongside, uh, it became quite apparent to me that it wasn't a river-type uh, craft, but more of an ocean-going-type ship. So we took a lot of photos of it. We didn't climb on it because you could see that the decks were pretty much rusted through, and that would be... Uh, very foolish uh, to get on them because then you're looking at a drop of 10 to 12 feet onto some steel machinery. Exactly. I have seen uh, YouTube videos of many folks, though, that are doing that very thing right. uh, to, to their peril, I think. Exactly. It's not a smart thing to do. No. Right. So right, right from the start, though, you could tell, you know, this was out of place. It wasn't something you would normally see on the river. And its state of disrepair was was pretty clear. Yes. And so you took uh, some pictures, and um, were you able to see any identifying information at that time, like any? Um, well, the only thing you could really make out on the bow, and most of the paint was flaked off, but you could see the Circle Line logo. And having grown up on the East Coast, I was somewhat familiar with it. Um, we, our group, always publishes photos online uh, for the enjoyment of the members, but also to let other uh, paddlers know what, you know, places to go, things to see. And 
a couple months after posting online, I was contacted by a guy named Mike Danowitz. And uh, he sent me an email saying that he and a friend uh, have a website dedicated to maritime history of deep sea fishing along the Atlantic coast. I believe they were located in New Jersey, and their uh, website was called Mills Place. Uh, it's under a different name now. I think it's called Mike's Maritime Memorabilia. And anyway, somehow he recognized the ship for what it was, and uh, the common knowledge or the common belief was that had been taken out of service by the Circle Line in 1984 and scrapped, and here he sees a picture of it. So he asked for all the information and photos I had, and then he posted it on his website. Okay. And that's the start of how it got more out into the public at that point? Yeah. Um, and plus, a lot of local people or regional people saw our photos and wanted to know how to see it, and so on. I see. Okay, so it just kind of naturally took on, I guess they call it going viral today. Yeah, that would be the word I'd use, yes. <laughs> okay. And did you remember telling, you know, friends and family about it and what their thoughts were? Oh, um, mostly people in the paddling or boating community and, um you know, uh, the reaction was curiosity. They wanted to see it. So uh, uh, we uh, we paddle over there a couple times a year. Our club, Cincy Paddlers, has an annual Halloween uh, paddle to the haunted, you know, ship, the ghost ship, uh-huh. quote unquote. And it's just a, a fun thing. And we don't leave our kayaks and get on the ship or the land. Um, I have secondhand information that the owner of the land is very concerned about liability, you know, uh, people being on his property, climbing on the ship, getting hurt, and uh, taking legal action against them. And we respect that. So um, we don't leave our kayaks or the water. And he he seems to have no problem with that. It's nice um, that he's uh, accommodating an understanding of why people would be so curious. And um, I can understand also, you know, his concern about people getting hurt. Correct. Um, Yeah. Um, And it's hard to know what would have happened, you know, had you not turned down that creek that day. Well, you know, honestly, I can't imagine somebody didn't know about it before us. We just never heard of it. Right. But um, although it might be the case because you wouldn't be just, you know, tromping through somebody's land and come across it that way. Uh, You wouldn't see it from the river from a power boat. So, you know, maybe we did discover it because, you know, we poke up these little creeks. So mm-hmm. it's possible. But, I mean, the, the thing is huge. It just surprised me that uh, I hadn't heard about it before we ran into it. Right. And, you know, even though it is huge, it's not visible from the river. Right? No, it isn't. No, you have to paddle up about 100 yards and, 
there's kind of a little bend there, so it, it isn't visible from the river through the trees and everything. Okay. So certainly um, it's reasonable to expect other people had seen it before, but you're the one that happened to forward it to Mike Banowitz, who then posted it to his page, and then that's where it started to gain traction. Right. Henry and his fellow kayakers had spotted a once-glorious 186-foot yacht built in 1902. The rusted-over steamer now lists to her starboard side. Rich soil litters her deck from countless years of flooding. Weeds of all kinds sprout from her, covering the vessel in an earthly blanket of vegetation. Locals have come to know her as Cincinnati's ghost ship although the name is somewhat misleading. There are no ghostly or paranormal tales associated with the ship. The term ghost reflects the haunting decay, the echo of what was once a magnificent vessel that sailed through some of our nation's most epic eras. So step with me aboard the USS Sachem. We'll sail through prominent periods of our nation's history, like the roaring wealth of the 1920s, both world wars, the Great Depression, and more. All from the deck of one decaying yacht marooned off the southern bank of the Ohio River. So just how did such a remarkable ship end up stuck in the mud in Taylor Creek, the small tributary where it's remained for 32 years? It began when one man, a Mr. Butch Miller, found what he'd been searching for, It was 1986, and for the past eight years, he had fantasized of owning a steam-powered yacht, the kind of which hadn't been made for decades. It would be the crown jewel in his collection of smaller boats. This vice president of a Cincinnati machine tool manufacturing company nearly gave up on his dream when he spotted an ad in Boats and Harbors magazine. It listed a disabled, steel-hulled, steam-powered yacht. The engine had long seized up. It had been abandoned in a Weehawken, New Jersey shipyard. The owner was selling the property and had to dispose of the rotting vessel and fast. The price was a steal at $7,500. Butch promised to have it moved out in a week. When he arrived in New Jersey, he did indeed find the vessel in great disrepair. It had long been stripped of its former glory, the mahogany trimmings, the brass fixtures. What he found was a flooded engine room, parts broken or missing, and rust and mud everywhere. But he wouldn't be deterred. He found a steamer, and he was going to bring her home to Cincinnati. Over the course of ten days, he would successfully drag the bogged vessel from the sludge of the Hudson River. She was then patched up, enough to make her seaworthy. Only then could the Sachem, an old name Butch had rechristened her, journey home toward Cincinnati. To bring her there, Butch installed a General Motors bulldozer engine on the stern. Once leaving the scrapyard and making about eight miles down the Hudson River, he stopped at a dock in Bayonne for repairs. Unexpectedly, a limousine pulled up to the dock ship and a representative of the pop star, Madonna, stepped out. They were filming a music video for her hit song, Papa Don't Preach, and wanted to use the sachem as a backdrop. Butch was delighted to oblige and refused any payment. You can still see brief glimpses of the vessel in the music video today, which can easily be found on YouTube. 
Madonna and her male counterpart are seen dancing on the deck. Butch's efforts were receiving media interest. He'd given interviews to newspaper reporters about his ultimate plans. Butch, his wife Deborah, and their son Rory would make Cincinnati the sachem's home port. But as he had told reporters, quote, she's going around the world once, twice, maybe 20 times. He believed he could get the ship fully restored in time to sail it down the Ohio River for Cincinnati's bicentennial celebration in 1988. The fun and good fortune at the start of the sachem's journey wouldn't last, however. Vandals and thieves would attack the ship, robbing her of what little valuables she had left, including her 2,000-pound anchor. Chronic engine problems made the voyage arduous and delayed, leaving the sachem vulnerable. All the more determined, however, Butch jerry-rigged a solution. He tied a broomstick to the propulsion unit controls and sat a lawn chair on the upper deck, now a makeshift helm. With this setup, the sachem could reach a speed of eight knots, two knots going against the current. He made it out of New York Harbor before running the ship aground in the fog. She had to be towed back into the harbor and moored for another year. Many of us at this point would have thrown in the towel. We would have taken all the obstacles as signs that the quest had been foolhardy and it was time to cut the losses. Not Butch. It was July 1986. The torch held by the Statue of Liberty was about to be relit, a rededication of the monument by President Reagan. Butch would take the vessel out for one last cruise. He filled it with friends and family, and they joined the countless other vessels in Hudson Bay, enjoying the fireworks. Butch's resolve to bring the sachem home remained. The following year, he would lay a course for the Hudson River, down the Erie Canal, onto the Great Lakes, and then past Chicago, where he would eventually connect with the Great Mississippi, and finally, the Ohio River and the Queen City. There were a few other mishaps along the way, like when he was detained by Canadian authorities after slipping into Canadian waters while in Lake Huron. And then there was the issue in Chicago, where Butch and his crew had to cut the stack in order to get the sachem to fit under low bridges. But they finally connected to the Mississippi, and then the Ohio. It was then, in the winter of 1988, after 40 days of sailing, that Butch navigated down Taylor Creek. This heavily wooded tributary flowed into his plot of land near Petersburg, Kentucky, A dense woods hides her final resting place, about 25 miles downstream of downtown Cincinnati. Butch planned to build a mooring platform to more easily complete the critical repairs. The problem was the shortage of funds, which had been depleted from the long and costly journey home. The sachem would remain there on the muddy bank for over 30 years. Successive floods would take an additional toll on the already feeble vessel. She sank deep into the riverbed, listing to her starboard side. The true cost of repairing or even moving the vessel proved overwhelming. So she remained there, forgotten by the masses, until her discovery by another Cincinnati man 
Mr. Henry Dorfman and his colleagues. As remarkable as this story has been thus far, we haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. What I'm about to tell you about this storied vessel is factual and backed up by the historical record. It's hard to overemphasize the wide significance this rotting ship has had in American history. A luxurious steam yacht called the Celt was first built in 1902 by the Pusey and Jones Company of Wilmington, Delaware. The 24-foot-wide vessel contained two deckhouses that had a total of nine staterooms, all lined in solid mahogany. They included adjoining bathrooms, tiled in rich mosaics. She was adorned by teak sills and brass handrails. The ship was outfitted with modern plumbing and electricity, a rarity in that age. Every stateroom had its own icebox. This was luxury at its best. The engine was a four-cylinder steamer, and she launched on April 12, 1902. Her first owner had been a wealthy Manhattan entrepreneur by the name of J. Rogers Maxwell. The purchase price, at the time, was a hefty $250,000, $7 million in today's dollars. It became his summer home. He toured it around New York Bay and the Long Island Sound. On his death in 1910, the vessel would be sold to one Manton Bradley Metcalf, an executive in the textile industry in Rhode Island. The Celt remained a pleasure craft until July 3, 1917, when she was pressed into naval service in support of the U.S. efforts in World War I. Her masts were removed, her portholes sealed with steel. Her sides were built up to make the vessel ocean-worthy, and military-grade navigation equipment was added. For a time, she was used to patrol the harbor. She was armed with depth charges and a defensive armament. Ever since the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915 off the coast of Ireland, civilian ships were leery of German U-boats lurking beneath the waves. The USS Sachem, SP-192, as the Navy had dubbed her, became a foot soldier in keeping America's shores safe. The name, Sachem, is associated with multiple Native American tribes, a term meaning chief or leader. The SP referred to section patrol. She was one of many civilian ships pressed into patrol service along the coast. The Sachem's route ran along the eastern seaboard from the New York Harbor as far south as the Florida Keys and U.S. territories in the Caribbean. Her most famous mission involved her role as a testing laboratory for Thomas Edison. Yes, I mean that Thomas Edison, the one and only. In the spring of 1917, the Navy granted Edison's wish for a floating laboratory on which he could develop new military devices. The USS Sachem, SP-192, was granted for his use and outfitted to suit his and his staff's needs. The inventor would live on the vessel for several months, testing and developing more than 30 military devices in support of the war effort. The ship allowed him to test his inventions under real-world conditions. The Wizard of Menlo Park, as he was known, was developing fog bombs to camouflage U.S. ships. 
He was building underwater sonar searchlights and ship-to-ship radar communication devices. When the war ended in 1918, the Sachem hadn't seen any active combat, but it's hard to calculate just how much her patrol and research efforts contributed to the Allies' success. In 1919, the Sachem was released from military service and returned to her former owner, Manton Metcalf. He in turn sold it to Roland Taylor, a banker and philanthropist. Taylor would use the yacht for both racing and pleasure purposes until the economic catastrophe of the Great Depression. It would necessitate his selling the vessel, and at a price drastically under its true value. The buyer, a charter fisherman of Brooklyn named Jacob Martin, would turn the vessel from a luxury item into a money-making machine. He would renovate the yacht into a fishing vessel, placing platforms at both the bow and the stern for those who liked casting reels over the edge. He placed comfortable seating all over the deck and constructed a tackle room. In addition, a refrigeration system was installed to keep the catch fresh, and a fully functioning galley was below deck. At a time when so many were desperate to meet their basic needs, Captain Martin sailed the shores of Sheepshead Bay each summer. For the price of $2, anyone could join a days-long fishing expedition. They could bring home as much fish as they could catch. To add a bit of drama for his passengers, Captain Martin was known to shoot sharks from the deck with a rifle. While this brought extra excitement to be sure, his passengers mainly had hopes of being able to feed their family, perhaps for weeks, if the haul was a good one. When the trip was especially bountiful, his customers, as many as 250 per expedition, carried home enough fish to feed an entire neighborhood. Sometimes, families that were down on their luck would pull their money together and send one healthy young man to bring back as many fish as he could carry. Captain Martin's business was booming, in our country's worst period of economic devastation. By 1936, the ship's long-serving steam engine was due to be replaced. The faster, more efficient diesel engine was just more practical, not to mention cheaper to operate. A 20-ton, 805-horsepower, 7-cylinder Fairbanks-Morse 37D14 engine is the only of its kind remaining in the world today. It still sits inside the flooded engine room in the hall of the abandoned sachem off the bank of the Ohio River. Captain Martin would maintain ownership and operation of the Sachem until 1941, when her country would need her service yet again. The attack on Pearl Harbor happened on December 7th of that year. The U.S. Navy, once again, requisitioned private yachts for the war effort, including the Sachem. The transition to the Navy's ownership was complete by February 1942, and she was renamed, this time, the USS Fenikite. She was upgraded with new military technology and devices. This included armor plating and heavy artillery, like anti-air machine guns. She would once again patrol the eastern seaboard, watching for threats against the homeland. Following the Pearl Harbor attack on U.S. soil, it's easy to forget the fears Americans faced about another attack. One treacherous day, while out on patrol in the stormy Atlantic, the Fenikite and her 40 men had to ride out gigantic waves brought on by a storm. 
the converted yacht was not truly meant for transoceanic travel, and she began listing at 62 degrees. The seasick crew had no choice but to ride out the storm, with some of her compartments filling up with water. She almost sank. Her captain was later quoted as saying, One more drop of water, and we would have been gone forever. All but one of the ship's crew survived the storm. An enlisted sailor fell overboard when a huge wave crashed over the deck. A couple men claimed to have witnessed his body being eaten by sharks afterward. In 1943, the USS Fenikite was often ordered to help escort large convoys as they made their way home on the U.S. side of the Atlantic. These escort units, known as wolf packs, included a variety of vessels such as destroyers and sub-chasers. One particular day, June 12, 1943, a Navy submarine, R-12 SS-89, suffered a breach in a torpedo tube and took only 16 seconds to sink off the coast of Florida. The Fenikite was nearby and started searching for survivors. None were ever found. All 42 men aboard the submarine lost their lives. About a month later, on July 19, 1943, the crew of the Fenikite were told of a suspected U-boat in the Key West sector. It had shot down the U.S. Navy blimp and the two officers inside it who had first spotted it. The Fenikite and 12 other Navy ships raced to the site. However, the U-boat had already fled underseas. Ownership of the vessel would transfer back to Jacob Martin in December 1945. He changed her name back to the Sachem. By that time, she was showing her age of 43 years. After completing active patrols with the Navy, she'd been harbored and neglected. When the captain realized he didn't have funds to make her seaworthy again, he had to put her up for sale. This would open the door for the Sachem's next exciting chapter, a sightseeing tour boat. If you Google Circle Line out of New York, you'll land on a website that touts the sightseeing company as America's favorite boat ride. Circle Line cruises have now carried over 60 million passengers, gasping at the iconic New York City skyline. The company started in 1945 with a small fleet of ships, one of which happened to be the USS Sachem. By 1946, the gun mounts were welded over, It was one of four sightseeing boats, their flagship, in fact, and it was dubbed the Sightseer. A second deck was added to allow for a full capacity of 492 paying tourists. To add to the ship's appeal, passengers were informed about the ship's long and remarkable history. The leisurely trips around Manhattan lasted about three hours and offered the best views of the city without having to walk a step. Rain or shine, Cruises departed from Manhattan's west side, sailing down the Hudson, past piers and freighters. On reaching the Battery, eager tourists could spot Wall Street, the Statue of Liberty, and Staten Island, all from the deck of their sightseer. Then she would turn to head up the East River to sail under the Brooklyn Bridge, around the northern tip of Manhattan, and under the George Washington Bridge, before returning to her dock. In the late 1950s, the Circle Line renamed the Sightseer the Circle Line 5. 
Also during that time, the company divested a great number of their sightseeing ships, but not this one. The popular vessel would remain in service, as would her sister retired military vessels, the Circle Line 10 and 12. Circle Line still owns them, although they haven't been used in service for many years. An attempt to put them up for sale in 2017 was unsuccessful, and they remain in storage. The fate of the Circle Line 5, however, was much different. After carrying almost 3 million tourists through New York Harbor, the company finally retired her in 1977. The cost of maintenance for the aged vessel proved too much. She was sold for scrap and abandoned at a pier in New Jersey. She was used for replacement parts and left to deteriorate. That is, until 1986, when a 35-year-old business executive from Cincinnati came to retrieve her, taking the sachem on her final voyage to the Queen City. Through the years after her discovery went viral in 2013, many have made efforts to restore the rotting vessel. The task would be daunting, and some believe, impossible. The state of absolute decay of many of her parts would make a restoration more like a rebuild. Would such an effort be worth it? How much could we spend to preserve a ship that fed countless during the Depression, kept our shores safe in times of war, and gave so many their first glorious views of the New York City skyline? The USS Sachem has captured our imaginations and our devotion. She reminds us of eras gone by and the sacrifices made by previous generations of Americans. The current owner of the private property where the sachem sits understands the draw she has for so many. However, the liability the wreckage poses is tremendous. Many are known to show up unannounced and clamor up onto the rotting deck for a first-hand look. They risk serious injury, if not death. Many holes in the deck are concealed by overgrown weeds. One fall of about 12 feet onto rusted-out machinery could prove disabling, if not deadly. The tributary itself is a public space, so kayakers and canoeists can paddle on by the ship and wonder at her glorious decay from a safe vantage point. But for those who want to contribute something more to this remarkable piece of American history, consider taking part in the Sachem Project. The organization is a group of concerned citizens from Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. Their ranks include former Circle Line employees, retired Navy, maritime historians, descendants of former owners, and other enthusiasts. Their website is the-sachem-project.org. They're an organization devoted to the preservation of the ship and the history she holds. I'd like to take a moment to thank them. Their passion and devotion for this piece of cultural heritage is clear. First, their objective is to work to prevent further damage to the vessel. Then, they'd like to restore her for use as a floating museum. As of September 2019, the group was working to form a nonprofit organization. Once that step is completed, they'll be able to collect donations, sign up volunteers, and promote wider media attention.
sometimes the ordinary world around us contains hidden treasures. We just need to take the time to turn down that next unremarkable tributary to see what might lie ahead. There might not be something as monumental as a rotting early 20th century yacht, but if you're careful, you might just find something even greater. You might capture that fleeting sensation of being part of something bigger than yourself. You might just sense your place in time and its relation to the wider history we all share. This concludes this week's episode of Ohio Folklore. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed it, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can find historic photos of the USS Sachem on ohiofolklore.com and on Ohio Folklore's Facebook page. And as a final reminder, come see Ohio Folklore in action during a special Halloween presentation at the Avon Lake Public Library on October 24th at 7 p.m. And as always, keep wondering.